Hi guys, before we begin I just wanted to let you know that I've started a new donation page where listeners can donate to the site and keep the podcast and YouTube channel running for the foreseeable future. Just visit coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com slash redcoathistory, all one word. All donations will, of course, go towards new silverware for the officer's mess and my collection of fine wine. Today, we're talking all about the Second Anglo-Maratha War in India between 1803 and 1805. It's a war best remembered in Britain for the Battle of Assai and the rise of General Sir Arthur Wellesley, who of course would later become the Duke of Wellington. It's a fascinating and complicated conflict that saw the Marathas inflict defeats on the British and East India Company armies before finally being ground down and beaten. I'm joined by a friend of the show, Josh Proven, who has recently published a book on the conflict. It's called Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira and is available now from Helion Books. It's a cracking read. If you like the show, then please subscribe and share the link with your friends. I think now more than ever, it's important to share these fascinating stories and to keep British military history alive. So for someone who's never heard of it before, why was the second Anglo-Maratha war important? If you look at the, the span of British involvement in South Asia, uh, this is definitely one of the events that stands out as, as, a, as a pivotal time for um, the British in India. Uh, prior to, to Richard Wellesley's term as, as Governor General in Bengal, uh, a person wishing to travel from there to the other presidencies would at some point have to cross into territory that was not under the control of the British uh, East India Company. What the Maratha War did was to create a, um, a single continuous zone of influence, or a single border, if you will, uh, whereby a, a, a person could, if they wanted, cross from one presidency to the other without technically leaving a place where you could, um, that you could call British jurisdiction. Uh, so in terms of territorial expansion, this was a massive, uh, a massive event. It saw the, the removal of the last great power then capable of competing with militarily with the, with the East India Company. The um, Marathas were removed and at a stroke, basically, the uh, British became custodians of the Mughal Emperor. Uh, Shah Alam, and he uh, was basically the, the, the magic totem at that time, that if you wanted to control India, if you could say you protected the emperor, emperor, then you were pretty much doing that, you were doing the will of the emperor, and in terms of Indian politics, that was a massive thing. Uh, so it was a major political coup, and confirmed basically British um, hegemony over the greater part of India from, uh, if, like I said at the beginning, if you want to sort of put it in your head how big the territorial expansion was, if you draw a line from the Punjab uh, across the Himalayan line as far as at this time, I think, Burma, and then all the way back down to the south, uh, ex uh, at this time not including Ceylon, um, 
which is now modern day uh, Sri Lanka, I believe. Uh, that is essentially what the territorial expansion you're dealing with. Uh, and we'll get to how that happened uh, a little later, but to, say, to put it simply, British, uh, British authority in this part of the world would not be challenged in, at the same scale until the Sikh Wars uh, of, the, uh, of about 30 or 40 years later. Which we've just covered on, uh, on the Redcoat History podcast, actually. So any listeners interested in that can go back and have a listen. Absolutely. Amar Paul's a great guy. Um, can you kind of sum up who, who or what are the Marathas? Because most people listening perhaps have never, never heard of them. Well, the Marathas are an ethnic group of Hindus, uh, typified by a common Marathi tongue, uh, who arose as a warrior class serving uh, in the old kingdoms of Ahmednagar and Bijapur in the 16th century. Um, they rose to power in the, as their own state in the late 17th century under Chaturapati uh, Shivaji Bonsley, and they grew to play a part uh, in the decline of the Mughal Empire. Uh, and under leaders like uh, Bajirao I Peshwa, uh, they became a formidable power in central India. Um, their expansion was blunted in, in the 1760s after uh, the Afghan Shah Durrani defeated them at the Third Battle of Panipat. Uh, but the generation of leaders that were around at this time actually um, sort of took that defeat and created a Maratha resurgence, whereas you'd think it would have been really ter a terrible thing to happen. Actually, this a group of leaders emerged from the disaster that created the character of the Maratha state that existed when the second uh, Maratha, Anglo-Maratha war began. And the character of it at this time uh, was uh, that the state was a collection of five principal um, Maratha states, uh, which was Indore, uh, Gwalior, Berar, Poon, and Baroda. Uh, all, all ruled by hereditary families who had at one point either been generals or uh, statesmen uh, to various other people in Maratha history and then became uh, and then became rulers in their own right uh, later on. And they banded together in a confederation uh, that pledged semi-autonomous allegiance to the Peshwa. Uh, in Poon, the, the Peshwa being the first minister of the Chaturpati, uh, now the Raja of Satara, who was now uh, a, another one of the many figurehead uh, sort of uh, deals in India at this time. And the power of the Maratha state was invested now in, well, the practical power was, was invested in the Peshwa. Um, the... Uh, most powerful of the states, however, was not the Peshwa anymore. And in fact, actually, you're getting to the stage where the Peshwa himself is becoming a figurehead um, for his own chief ministers. And uh, the most powerful state, uh, for reasons we'll get to later, is, is, is probably Gwalior, um, which is under uh, the rule of the House of Sindhya. And uh, I do apologize if I'm saying that wrong, but there are about three ways of saying that name. 
I just chosen this one. I think I actually call it, I think I actually call uh, the family name a slightly different uh, name in a different podcast, but that's the, <laughs> that's the nature of the, <laughs> the subject. But yeah, under, under rulers like Mahadaji, Sindhya, and statesmen like Nana, Fadnavis, the Confederacy held together after uh, Panipat and uh, recovered to the, to the extent that the latter half of the century from the 1760s to, the, to 1800, you see them gain ascendancy over the Nizam of Hyderabad, Mysore. They even give the East India Company a bruising in the first Maratha war, and they become the protectors of the emperor in Delhi. Uh, so this uh, is a very powerful state, uh, but it is now going to be facing some problems as the Second War sort of comes onto the horizon. So, so they were this big, powerful confederation of states. And am I right in saying they, uh, they kind of stretched from the west coast of India up past Delhi and, and around there? So that's a pretty big pretty big uh, area that they that they covered is that correct uh, yes the, the the zone of control was absolutely uh, at the time of the collision between the British and the Marathas uh, quite extensive it, it covered covered yeah from the west coast just about reaching the east coast narrowing at that point uh, across the central belt of India which is called the Deccan uh, and uh, they were effectively the controllers of what the British certainly called Hindustan, which is uh, the the northern yeah the northern part of India below the Himalayas, controlled by uh, Delhi, and um, they they ran it because they ran it along. I mean, traditionally speaking, the Marathas did things by by exerting uh, tribute money from surrounding states, they call it the Chat. And uh, this was how they did, this was the Pax Maratha, if you want to call it. Um, you, If you're an ally of the Marathas, they're good allies, they will crush your enemies for you if you pay them the protection money. Um, but if you don't, then you will become one of those people they crush. So we've got this big, powerful Indian state emanating from the west of India. And then coming out mainly from the east, I know there was bits and pieces elsewhere, we've got the East India Company, which has now become a, a, a very powerful force in India. How did relationships between these two entities develop and how did that lead to war and when did the war begin? Okay, so obviously the Marathas and the East India Company had been in sort of diplomatic contact for quite a long time. They were, it's in, that uh, along with um, the remaining larger states in India, so the Hyderabad, obviously, um, infamously, you might call it Mysore, uh, which was uh, which the big, the big target of the British for most Sultan of Sultan and all of that. Exactly, and they come into more diplomatic contact and conflict due to the decline of the Maratha Empire, as as I'm sure many listeners are aware, that although a state might grow to its sort of most powerful and most brilliant, when that happens, it's often usually in, also in a state of decline. So although the Marathas did see this resurgence in their power uh, towards the end of the 18th century, you're also looking at a destabilization of the state. Uh, 
due to the nature, both the nature of the Maratha state itself and also the influence of rising power of the East India Company. So in 1802, uh, Bajirao II fled his capital in Poon. He's the Peshwa. He is the leader, ostensible leader of the Maratha Confederacy. Uh, but he has fled because the House of Holkar, the Maharajas of Indore, have produced a a faction that basically wants vengeance on him and his allies. And a civil war breaks out between Banshee Rao, his ally Sindhya, and Holkar. This is the Maratha civil war. And Banshee Rao loses it. He has to flee from Pune. He goes to the British, who are cultivating uh, Indian subsidiaries, dependencies. He signs a treaty with the British that if they will help him defeat his enemies and get him back on the throne, he will sign, he will become one of their subsidiaries. Brilliant. So that, that's almost the sort of classic way Britain expanded through India, wasn't it? That, 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 sort, of, um, that sort of wheeling and dealing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is classic <laughs> empire building. Yeah, sort of divide and conquer. So, so Baji Rao has now signed uh, to become a subsidiary of the British if they can put him back on the throne. Militarily now, what happens next? Militarily now, uh, the British are committed to uh, a very large uh, deployment of troops. Uh, they gather in Bengal and Bombay and from Madras as well. Uh, uh, they're, they're the presidency armies and a... A, a, what they called an advanced detachment under a, a, a out-of-the-way guy called Major General Arthur Wellesley, uh, who had done some clever things in Mysore, uh, was given command of this, this detachment to run ahead and put uh, and take Poon to put Bajirao there. That's the initial step. And how did that go? Very well. I mean, it was a tough march. But this guy, Arthur Wellesley, uh, he likes logistics and he likes planning things. And he, he gets his men where they need to go. And he, he gallops his cavalry in uh, to Poon. Very, in, it, pretty, pretty straightforward. The, ma the, main, the main, um, main difficulties are basically the terrain, getting through the Western Ghats, which are a range of mountains which run down, <coughs> sorry, which run down the Western coast of India. And he gets to Poon, he captures it, he gets the city intact. Uh, the, the puppet Peshwa, Amrat Rao, um, flees, and uh, Bajrao can come back. But then they, well, you'd think, wouldn't you? Because this is where this is where the British want it to end. Nice and neat, little bow on the top. We have the subsidiary thing going now. They because they think that the Maratha rulers are compelled to do what Bajirao says. In fact, they're not. Sindhya does not like the idea that Bajirao has just gone 
and sold the Maratha uh, confederacy down the river. And Holkar, who is his enemy anyway, is saying, well, I don't need to sign that. You're my enemy. I just kicked you out, didn't I? And so the problem is now the British find that they have to try and get the other Maratha powers to, to sign off on the Treaty of Bassein, which they don't. Okay, so, so Pune's now in British hands, but everything's still up in the air. Now, we don't need to go into massive detail because you and I have spoke before about Sir Arthur Wellesley's early life and included some of this. But for anyone who's new to the story, can you just give us the, the five-minute version of what happened next and how we got to the Battle of Assay? Right. Uh, I, can, I, can, I can do you better than five minutes, I think. I timed this and I think I've got Oh, it. nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just go to my prepared notes. <laughs> the, um, the, okay, so summary of the, uh, the Second Anglo-Maratha War, uh, which can be found in greater detail in my book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> which I, I was lucky enough to read a bit of a preview of, and I must say I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to learn more. But uh, they, can, they can get back and, and, and get a copy of your book. But for now, let's hear, let's hear your summation of the war. Okay. So the British occupied Poon on the 19th of April, 1803. They restored Bajau, and then, as I said, they proved incapable of forcing Scindia to agree to the Treaty of Bassein. And Holkar as well, not enthusiastic. An ultimatum was delivered to Scindia on the 29th of July, and the war began profit with the storming of Ahmed Nage on the, between the 8th and the 12th of August. Uh, at the, all this time, you have the British Commander-in-Chief, Gerard Lake. Uh, he's been mustering uh, and marching into Hindustan to take Aligarh by storm. In the, was he in the north sort of Delhi yes. side around there? Absolutely. There's two fronts here. Uh, the Commander-in-Chief in, in the East India Company, you have the Commander-in-Chief and you have the Governor-General. Those are the two highest positions. And he's going into the North and Wellesley's going to take the Deccan, uh, which is in the South. Literally Deccan actually means South of here or something like that. And so he takes Aligarh by storm on the 4th of September, allowing him to march on Delhi, where a battle is fought on the 11th of September and the city falls five days later. On the 23rd of September, Wellesley routes Scindia's field army at Assai. Meanwhile, Lake is pressing on to Agra, making new treaties with local powers as he goes, taking the city on the 18th of October, by which time Wellesley is in pursuit of Scindia's other ally, the Rajah of Berar and trying to bring him to battle. On the 1st of November, Lake fights his own version of the Battle of Assai at Laswari, uh, with his forces broken on both fronts. Scindia agrees to an armistice with Wellesley uh, 23 days later. At the end of November, Wellesley routes the Berar army at Argaon and presses on to besiege Gawilgur, which is stormed on the 15th of December. With these things, with things increasingly looking sewn up in Hindustan, Lake, sends a detachment after Holkar, who has just been keeping completely out of this, and uh, just watching how it goes. Uh, we're, many people criticize him for that, but it was probably fairly sensible because he couldn't trust his allies. Um, he, uh, so like uh, sends someone to chase him and begins to break up his army to go into winter quarters and well, to go back into quarters, uh, but Disaster strikes because between the 7th of July, 1804, and the end of August, Holkar destroys this force as it retreats towards Agra. 
Who Lake's for? Uh, this attachment that Lake sends after Holcar. So Lake is Lake's okay, but he's 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 uh, uh, underestimated Holcar, and Holcar has turned on this force, and he he he, he really disintegrates it. Uh, it's called Monson's Retreat, and it was a really big deal at the time. It was said that no. Nothing in the history of the East India Company uh, paralleled the disaster at that point. So he destroys this force and then he tries to capitalize on it. He sends his guns and infantry up to Delhi to besiege that and he sends hordes of cavalry to try and stop Lake uh, from relieving the city before he can break into it. Very gallant defense of Delhi by, uh, I think, David Occhilani. and. Lake relieves Delhi on the 17th of October, despite massive supply issues. He's really, it's a real mess from here on in. And he then manages to chase down Holkar and routes him at Farukabad a month later. Meanwhile, Holkar's early successes encouraged the luckless Raja of Bharatpur, which is a small semi-independent state in, uh, I guess, Rajasthan. And uh, he had joined sides with Holkar just as Holkar was getting beaten. And so Lake decided to go and punish him. This proves to be another mistake because although he takes the frontier fortress of Deeg on the 24th of December, we're now in 1805, by the way, um, Lake then pushes on to attack Bharatpur, besieges it. But again, inexplicably for the British, who have never failed to take a city they have besieged in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. By the 22nd of February, four assaults have been repulsed by the defenders of Barrett. And the, on the 20th of April, the siege is lifted. As a, it's a failure. He, they could not take Bharatpur. In fact, it became a saying, a mocking saying in the part of India to the British, come and take Bharatpur. And well, just to, just to cut you off for a moment there, uh, anyone who follows my YouTube channel will have seen a video I made about a gentleman called John Ship. I don't know if you came across him in the course of your research. I'm sure you did. Uh, who, who was promoted for leading the forlorn hope at Bharatpur, I think three times and was badly wounded in, in the pro process. And so if anyone wants to, to hear a, a really powerful description of the attacks against that fortress city, then, then they can go back on my YouTube channel and, and look for John Ship, or, or alternatively find a copy of his memoirs online, because it's cracking reading, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. He is one of the main witnesses to the, to the Siege of Bharatpur, and he's absolutely in my book, as well as a couple of other Glad very interesting, <laughs> a couple of very interesting diarists as well. Uh, but that is essentially where the Second Maratha War ends in this weird offshoot I should also say there was fighting also in Gujarat, which was much more straightforward, but uh, I didn't have time to cover that in any detail without sacrificing some of the other places. But um, because the Marathas can't capitalize on the confusion of Lake's forces at Bharatpur, um, Holkar flees to Punjab, where we meet the chap you mentioned earlier, Ranjit Singh, who is confusingly the name also of Raja of Bharatpur, but nevertheless, um, he goes there and he tries one last desperate attempt to try and get the Sikhs to help him. But Ranjit Singh, like I said, is a clever guy. And he says, no, it's not the right time to fight the British. Sorry. And so Holkar, the last of the 
last of the great Marathas, you might call him, uh, surrenders, uh, and that is essentially the end of the, of the end of the Second Maratha War. So does that mean then that all of those Maratha states that made up the Confederacy were now subsidiaries of the British? Had, had the British then expanded their original plan and now all of those Maratha states um, kind of had to pay their dues to the British? Is that the case? That is pretty much the case, yeah. Richard Wellesley was, did his best to be very harsh about treaty terms, uh, trying to deprive, for instance, uh, Dalitras, India, uh, from, uh, yeah, de deprive him of uh, his capital at Gwalior, which really, uh, really got Arthur Wellesley angry because he had, in his ceasefire treaties with Dalitra, had said, well, you can keep that because actually Arthur Wellesley wasn't really keen on the entire idea. He thought that they should just take Poon, put Bajirao back on the throne and then leave, you know, leave the, leave the subsidiary garrison there but if he then wanted help, he would have to ask for it. And he didn't see why they needed to continue. He, no assai would have happened. None of these battles would have happened if, if Arthur Wellesley had been in full command, he'd have just pulled back after that. But Richard Wellesley really wanted Delhi and he really wanted to make sure that especially Scindia and his very powerful European trained very Frenchified kind of army that he had inherited from his his father uh, was out of the picture. So yeah, all of the Maratha states, by virtue of the submission of Bajirao, the Peshwa, were forced by military action in the Second Maratha War to accept the Treaty of Bersain, uh, which made them all subsidiary uh subsidiary clients of the british brilliant and and just to clarify for any listeners who who maybe uh weren't aware or maybe missed any reference to it earlier of course uh so arthur wellesley went on to become the duke of wellington that's how many people may know him uh we had our little insider jokes about this you know small little known major general but for anyone who who wasn't quite clear yes that is uh, the man who went on to become the duke of wellington who was actually richard wellesley the um the, uh, the civilian in charge is brother. So that, that always makes life a bit easier, doesn't it? It made it, it, made it incredibly easier for, <laughs> for Arthur Wesley that his brother became governor general of India just as he came over <laughs> as, this, uh, as this battalion level uh, officer. Yeah, and he later said um, in the conversations that he, he didn't learn anything new about warfare after he came uh, out of India. Uh, this is where he learned how to to, to beat the French in. <laughs> well, that's that's probably a great segue then. Now, you and I have spoke about Asai before on a previous podcast, so I don't think we should go into massive detail, but could you give us, a, you know, another sort of quick summation of the Battle of Asai, what happened and why it was important and, and what it meant for uh, for Sir Arthur Wellesley's career as well? Could you kind of sum that up in a, in a, in a, a shorter way as possible? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll definitely try. Um, the, the Battle of Assai was fought in uh, September of 1803, and it was fought between the forces of uh, obviously South Wellesley and, and uh, the Gwalior state forces, you might call it, uh, ostensibly under Scindia, but he wasn't actually on the battlefield. It, it was the culmination of the, of the initial stages of the war proper. 
Wellesley had had great difficulty chasing the Maratha army down and he finally caught it, but he caught it without the support of his second division under Colonel Stevenson, which was operating parallel to him, but separate. Very daringly, he decided with somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 men to attack the Maratha army when he had the chance rather than waiting around for the other division to come in. And so he just marched in, found a way to attack it and attacked it. His simple, simple guiding belief that the Marathas wouldn't be flexible enough to react to him. He was wrong. He underestimated them. He'd actually been warned about the fact that their infantry and guns were terrifying, but he pulled it off. It was, it was a, a it was a battle made up on the spur of the moment because everything started to go wrong and he had to keep changing his plans halfway through the battle. And the stolidity of the British King's infantry and sepoy infantry of the presidencies allowed him the a bit to survive this battle. He'd lost a third of his force, but he did drive the Marathas from the field. And it is said on several by several witnesses that they had to be driven. They didn't just run away. They had to be driven off at bayonet point. And this was at the time thought to some people said that, that no battle in India had ever been seen like it. That the scale of the forces involved were very disproportionate. So some people say that the Marathas had over 40,000 men and he had only like 7,000, Wellesley had only like 7,000 men. He also couldn't use his guns because the Maratha artillery knocked out all the, the draft bullocks before they could come up effectively. And uh, he really got hammered in terms of casualties. But the, uh, the, It, it, was a, it was a very big moment for him as a general who had thus far only distinguished himself under command of others to show his tactical flexibility, his acumen for command. Um, and it's, it's also, uh, yeah, and it also showed that obviously, it also showed he was a risk taker because he spent a lot of time after his writing letters saying that, yeah, I lost a lot of men, but here's why. Please don't blame me for this. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, there was no reverse slope in sight. No, no, not a bit of cover. In fact, it was so, so flat that the torrent of fire coming from the Maratha line caused some, uh, some soldiers to try and take cover in the tiniest clefts of ground turning their knapsacks to the fire as if that would stop bullets because it was a, it was an absolutely appalling th advance to try and drive the, drive the Marathas off the field. Fantastic. And for anyone listening who doesn't know, can you give us a bit of an overview of, of how good that Maratha army was? Because I think a lot of people who don't follow uh, Britain's colonial wars in India may not realize quite how sophisticated the the army that Wellesley was facing was. Could you just give us a, a bit of an overview um, of what that Maratha army was like and, and the European influence particularly? <laughs> Delighted, because that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book, <laughs> actually, was to show that um, that Indian armies uh, weren't just a bunch of pushovers. I mean, it's really typified by this conversation that Napoleon had with the British officer who had served in India 
um, where he basically said, uh, what are the Indians just all cowards? How did they let you conquer them? And the guy had to explain, they're not cowards. Some the, our, for our part, our sepoys are just as good as our British um, Europeans. And this is the point. Every state in India at this time was in a state of modernizing its armed forces. And the Marathas were ahead of the game in that sense. Um, they, they had what they were, what was called the regular corps, uh, which was a force of Euro, basically European trained sepoys. They had the largest uh, regular army in India at the time. Uh, and it was formed around brigade sized units called Kampus. And these were run, uh, these could be anything from like four battalions to eight battalions strong. They had their own artillery attached to them. They had a squadron of cavalry attached to them. They even had light troops attached to them, matched, like levied matchlock men who skirmished for them. And they were uh, incredibly effective soldiers. If they'd been allowed to exist for another 10 years, they probably would have been uh, unbeatable by the company army. But they, as, as they were, they were, this was the force that allowed the Marathas to expand their, their, their power base. And the, the regular corps is interesting because of the characters involved in it. Uh, it's, like I say, it's, it's offset by a mixture of Europeans and native, uh, native officers. Uh, which, you know, there were various degrees of professionalism, but for the most part, they were all dedicated soldiers, uh, professional soldiers. The funny thing is that quite a lot of them were uh, quite low ranking uh, guys who came over from Europe looking for money. And this is true of anybody from Sindhi's commandant and commander-in-chief in Hindustan, uh, the Frenchman Perron, uh, who had just been like a, a sailor in the French Navy and ended up as basically the lord of, of Hindustan and gaining millions of rupees in revenue a year. Uh, the ultimate example of, of white privilege would that be? <laughs> seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, if you if you could train troops uh, and you could get to get the ear of one of the maharajas, you could be quite privileged. Yeah, uh, one of the Kampu um, commanders uh, was a was a Hanoverian called uh, Polman, uh, who had been an NCO in the East India Company. Who's um, in the sharp books, I believe. I think one he of is. The characters. Yeah, I think he is. And uh, another was a chap called James Skinner, who's very interesting. Fantastic. He, I, I, I want to do a whole podcast on him in the future. Yeah, but please I, go ahead. I'd like in on that because he's one of my favorite people. Oh, great. <laughs> um, him, him, and, him and Begum Sumru are my two favorite characters from this entire uh, period of history. And he is the son of, an, of a Scottish EIC officer and a Rajput hostage. And his mixed race birth meant collided with the reforms of 1796 or something like that, which banned, in quotes, country-born uh, officers from holding commissions in the East India Company Army, which had not been the case previous to this. Uh, but Cornwallis was a funny guy. And 
But, but, you know, that, what the East India Company's loss was the Marathas gain because he took service in their army. And this is the case quite a lot. I think this is probably a fairly typical uh, sign of the times from 1796 onwards, where you get a lot of, a lot of people who can't get service in the East India Company going to their going to their competitors. And there was this very interesting kind of military economy in South Asia at this time where the East India Company was vying for recruits, but also turning away perfectly fine ones. And he was with the Marathas and uh, he is an interesting guy because he left a memoir uh, or at least dictated a memoir to another guy, uh, which is an amazing book. And you should all read that for absolutely certain because I mean, it's it's a, it's the ultimate tale of daring do, and I mean, I guess nobody could be as <laughs> it, it's 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 very hard to believe sometimes, but in a good way. It's really it's a really good book. So do please look more into to James Skinner. Another interesting guy is a guy called William Gardner, who was a colonel in Holkar's service. Like I say, everybody had. European mercenaries serving in their various states. And he went so far as to convert to Islam and marry a, um, a he married the, I think, let me just see. Yeah, he, he, he married the daughter of the Nawab of Cambay who was actually related to the Mughal emperor by some tortured sort of passage. And this was interesting because of how seriously he took it. And I think it exemplifies the way that a lot of European officers felt about the regular corps. They did see it as a legitimate armed force that they could take as much pride in as if it was a European force and it had its own traditions and it had its own way of doing things. And like I say, had it existed for longer, it would have, it would have been a very formidable thing to face. So why we ask ourselves could it not, when it had 20,000 men at SI, by conservative estimates, not stop the British advance? It lost its offices. Richard Wellesley, at the beginning of the campaign, issued a proclamation saying, any European found in arms against the company, basically all bets were off. You could be done as a traitor. You could, you know, the rules of war would not apply. Was that all Europeans or all English? Uh, I believe it's all Europeans, wow. um, but especially English. And there were a lot of English in um, in the in the in the armies of the of the Marathas, and the the and obviously that means you are a traitor no matter what you do. And unsurprisingly, I guess, although disappointingly mass desertion occurred from the officer corps of the Maratha uh, state forces. Some stayed longer than others, but eventually even people like James Skinner as well, just, just left because there was the carrot, this is a carrot and stick. They offered rewards and service with the company if you deserted. Even Perron, the commander in chief <laughs> of Sindhya's army took a bribe and left. Um, so what that does at a stroke is remove trusted officers from 
obviously leadership positions within the regular call, and that crippled their effectiveness in battle. And I think that is the main reason why success always attended even against ridiculous odds. I mean, Lake at La Soiree said that if the Maratha Campus had been commanded by the European officers, he didn't think he'd have been able to break them. Because, so basically their backbone might have been still there, but it was easy to break because there was no there was no structure to it anymore. They'd lost their sort of ability to command and control because there yeah. was no sort of middle management in a sense. Yeah. And so when this happened, Holkar, who being the kind of guy he was, he didn't just let people go. He executed a bunch of them because he was like, you're all faithless so-and-sos. I'm going to teach you all a lesson. And, you know, it was probably fairly <laughs> right to, to make an example of them because it was... It wasn't necessarily their fault because like I say, you're a traitor one way or the other. So you have to choose. And it would have probably been more honorable to stay with their current employees, but life is how it is. Anyway, Gardner, this guy, Colonel Gardner was, was with his wife in Kulp Holkar's camp. And he'd been sent to treat with General Lake. And he'd been away so long that Holkar got really suspicious about the guy. And when he came back with his, with his news, he, Holkar basically said, you're a traitor and uh, I'm going to cut the ropes of the women's quarters of your tent as a result of this. That's sacrilege. You can't do that. It's the rules of the Zanana, uh, which is the women's quarters. You cannot, it's, set about, set, it's partitioned by curtains and a special curtain called the Purda. And if you break that, it's a massive taboo because you're not allowed to look into the women's quarters. And Holkar would threaten to do that is massive. Now to, you might think he's a European, you know, Gardner's European, he'll just say, all right, do your worst, we'll just run away. No, he took it, he said that that was, to anybody, to, to a Muslim, if you, say, if you threaten to do that, you're basically spitting in his face. And so Gardner took it that way, drew his sword and tried to kill him on the spot. <laughs> And that's the level that some European officers had committed to their, their roles. He actually had to flee, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> after that. But that's, I, th I always find that story very interesting as it, it alongside some other testimony from people like um, one of Cindy's officers, a guy called Lewis Fernand Smith, who wrote a very interesting book about the regular corps. It shows the dedication that could have been very vital to the Maratha cause if the Governor General, Richard Wellesley, hadn't been so sneaky as to undermine that completely. Brilliant. Well, I think that's nearly a great spot to wrap up because we've, we've been chatting for nearly an hour and we've covered a lot of ground and I think it's been really, really good. One thing I will ask, though, can you tell everybody about your new book and, and where they can get it and, uh, you know, what they should know about it? Well, uh, the new book is Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, uh, the Maratha and Jat campaigns of 1803 to 1806. It's available from Helion and Company. It is nicely illustrated for you all uh, by Patrice Cursell. And it will be available, uh, I believe, uh, very shortly, certainly the summer of this year. Uh, so do please, do please go and buy it if you liked 
uh, if we gave you a taste of 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 the second Maratha war and you want to learn more uh, the the book covers pretty much what we've talked about in what I what we've talked about and what I said in the summary of the war so from the capture of Poon in 1802 no 1803 uh, 1803 to the uh, Hokkas surrender uh, in 18, uh, in late 1805. And it covers, unlike I think other books on the Second World War, it doesn't just stay in 1803, it doesn't just look at Arthur Wellesley, it looks at General Lake, it looks at, and it looks at the offshoot campaign at Bharatpur, and, uh, which is very important as well. And you can't really separate the two because they're continuous, I felt. Uh, and I hope it also goes some way to show why the Marathas lost and that it wasn't because they were bad soldiers or that Indian armies are pushovers. Uh, and I think it also, and I also wanted to show uh, a coming of age of the Indian army. This is the first period that I've seen in which you actually get officers calling it the Indian army and the rise of the Sepoy army as a respected and formidable force, which you absolutely see at Bharatpur at a very dramatic moment in the siege, which I hope you'll buy the book to, uh, sorry to leave you hanging on that. <laughs> Please buy the book to find out what it was. <laughs> but they really rescued British honor in the disaster uh, of, uh, of, the, of the third assault. Fantastic. And just, just to interject, there's a little peninsula link here with General Lake, of course. I'm sure you know it, Josh, but his son was killed leading the 29th, I believe, at, at the Battle of Ralisa, fighting mm -hmm. uphill against the French defences. So there's a little, if everyone, anyone wants to go back to episode one of season three of my podcast, they can hear all about that. And that was General Lake's son. It was, and he'd actually been badly wounded at Las Wari as well. They thought he was going to die there, but he survived to outlive his father to die in another foreign field. Britain's colonial conflicts in India really are fascinating, aren't they? We'll definitely be covering more of them in future episodes of the Redcoat History Podcast. By the way, actually, I want to tell you my new book should be out shortly. I've finished the first draft. It's with my editor, Chris Biggs. It's The Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsula War, Volume 2, The Battles of Busaco, Barossa and Albuera. I'm really pleased with it and I hope you'll like it. Just be sure to subscribe to the website at redcoathistory.com and you'll get a monthly newsletter keeping you updated with links. Anyway, that's all for this episode. Enough of my self-promotion, but I'm desperate to try and keep this podcast alive. Keep in touch and all the best.